Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A mother in Africa came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she grew in her commitment. She grew in her walk in the Lord. But as you can imagine, this alienated her from her husband. And over the years, he kind of grew to despise and hate her devotion to Jesus Christ. His anger, his bitterness, it grew to the point where he actually made the decision that he was going to kill his wife. And kill the children and then he would kill himself. Because he testified that he could not simply live with the misery of being married to a believer in Christ. But he figured he needed a motive to kill her. He needed a reason, a justification, if you will, to kill his wife. So he decided that he would actually accuse her of stealing his keys. Now, he was a banker. So his keys were not only for the house and for the car, but for the bank as well. So early one afternoon, he left the bank and headed for the local tavern to get up some liquid courage, if you will. And on his way home, keep in mind this is Africa, he went across a bridge that took him over the headwaters of the Nile River, figuring he needed to get rid of his keys. Before accusing his wife of taking his keys, he stopped on the bridge and dropped his keys into the river. Then the man made his way to the local bar, spending his entire afternoon getting up the courage, if you will, to carry out his plan. Now, while the man was at the bar, later that afternoon, his wife went to the fish market to buy their evening meal. She purchased a very large Nile perch. Now, these fish are huge. They can get as big as five feet in length. And so she took this fish home. And as she was gutting the fish, she could not believe what she found. Because in the belly of the fish were her husband's keys. She wondered how her husband's keys had gotten inside of this large fish. She couldn't figure it out. But she cleaned off the keys and put them up on the hook. And when the young banker came home that night, he pounded open the front door all drunk and angry, and he shouted at the top of his voice, Woman, where are my keys? And his wife was already in bed. She got up and just picked him up off the hook and handed him to her husband. Now when he saw the keys sitting there, by his own testimony, he stated he could not believe what God had done. And he instantly fell to his knees crying, asking for forgiveness from the Lord, accepting Jesus Christ as his Savior. Now the wife, she had witnessed to her husband for years and years and years. But it all came home when the Lord got his attention, when he was at the lowest point in his life. And that, by the way, is actually a very well-documented true story. God has 
all kinds of different ways of getting our attention, doesn't he? Maybe for you it was the loss of a loved one. Could be problems with your health. The loss of a job could be the loss of a home. No matter what it was, the Lord used something in your life to get your attention. To bring you to saving faith in Him. For the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 9, he had a story like none other. For Paul, it was a direct encounter with the living Christ. Saul of Tarsus had been kicking against the goads, if you remember. He had been resisting the truth of Christ. Now he found himself broken before the Lord, humbled and ashamed of his crimes against the church of Jesus Christ, blinded, fasting for three days without food, three days without food or drink. In a weakened state, Saul was seeking the Lord in prayer. Now the Lord responded to Saul by sending Ananias to him. Notice once again in our first two verses. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. What strikes me as I read verse 17, is that Ananias was laying hands on Saul, and as he did that, he addressed him as Brother Saul. Do you see that in the text? Ananias could have just said this as one Hebrew man to another, but I really don't think so. This is one believer in Christ reaching out to someone that has just entered into the family of God. Ananias was on a mission from God, but why? Why was he there? Well, verse 17 tells us the answer to that. The Lord Jesus sent him so that Saul would receive his sight and for Saul to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Saul knew, if you remember, that he was coming. Verse 12 showed us this, that Saul had a vision telling him that Ananias was coming to him to restore his sight. As Ananias laid hands on Saul, immediately, immediately the Bible tells us that Saul received his sight. Now, there's a very good chance that you miss something here in the text. Go back to verse 17 again and watch the wording with me. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me, watch, that you may receive your sight and what? Be filled. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's review the book of Acts for a second. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the new believer in Christ receiving the Spirit of God for the first time. The filling of the Holy Spirit is the believer in Christ submitting himself to the Spirit of God. And so what I'm telling you is this. My firm belief is that Saul was already saved by this point. Saul had already received the Spirit of God before Ananias showed up on the scene. Saul had actually seen Jesus Christ. Saul had already been broken before God. You know, over in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote many years after this about uh, this topic. He said that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except what? By the Holy Spirit. 
But that is exactly what Saul did before this. He referred to Christ as Lord. The Spirit of God was already teaching Paul of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God was already at work in the life of Saul because Saul had been chosen by the Lord. So listen, here's the point. Do not let anyone teach you that this text here in Acts 9 is telling us that Saul received the Spirit of God days after his conversion with Christ. Saul received the Spirit of the Lord directly from the Savior. And what Luke is recording for us is that when Ananias came to Saul, Saul received the restoration of his sight. Now what did this do? You receive your sight again. You can start seeing things again. This builds your faith. The vision you had seen came true. It built up his faith in the living Christ, enabling him to further submit himself to the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Now, the filling of the Spirit of God is an act of submission on the part of the believer in Jesus Christ. Ananias confirms for us that the Lord did appear to Saul on the road to Damascus. And it was not just a light and it was not just a vision from heaven. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, I always get a lot of questions about verse 18. What were these things that fell off of Saul's eyes? Something like scales on a fish. That's really all we know. But they had now fallen away. But Paul... As a believer, watch him. He's locked and loaded here. He had been told to wait in this house in Damascus. He'd been told to wait for Ananias to come. But as soon as his vision returns, as soon as he can see, what does the text say? He arose and was baptized. Now in the Hebrew families, it might have been tolerated to talk about the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah. But now, to actually be a believer in Jesus, to be baptized in the name of Jesus, well, this would end it. This would cut off all the ties with your family. Your own family in that day may have even turned you in. Saul arose and was baptized. Baptism is important. Baptism is the statement of obedience that tells the entire world, you've made your choice. You've decided to follow Jesus Christ. Verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, watch this in the text. Saul thought baptism was actually so important to identify with God, to identify with the family of God, that notice the progression here in the text. He was baptized first, then he broke his fast. Then he went and got some food. I would have ate first probably, but he actually went and got baptized first and then he ate. And then Paul spent some time with the believers in Damascus, learning that the people he was persecuting were very loving people, people who actually knew the truth of God's word. During World War II, armies on both sides did experiments They were trying to figure out the most effective punishment to get information from prisoners. But what they came to after all these different studies is that solitary confinement is one of the things that did the best. It was one of the most effective means. Why? Because after just a few days of being locked up and isolated all by yourself, most men would spill the beans. They would tell everything they knew. 
Because God's actually designed it this way. You see, we need each other. We're stronger together. This is why we need fellowship in the church. This is why we need the church. Because without it, temptation in our life, it gains strength. In our own faith, it gets weaker and weaker. But watch what happens once Saul gains some strength, starting with verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem? And he has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Saul now preached Christ. But hear me on this because a lot of people walk away from this text with the wrong ideas. Do not walk away thinking in verse 20 that Saul was already going out there and teaching other believers all the doctrines of the Christian faith that he would later write out in his epistles. Come on, he's a brand new convert at this point. Notice the careful wording. Luke tells us he preached Christ. He preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Meaning, Saul was witnessing to the Jews, and the synagogues were a place of witness for the early church. This is a new believer sharing the one thing that he has, his testimony of Jesus Christ. So to declare that Jesus is the Son of God is to declare that Jesus is actually God. Now, we say that a lot, but why do we say that? Let's take a moment to examine that. Let's put together some of these doctrines that we just rattle through sometimes because I really believe you need to know these things. In Romans 1, Paul listed out some of the proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans 1, watch this. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it declared Jesus to be the Son of God. It demonstrated the power of God, and it demonstrated that Christ is not just a man, he is God. But why? Why does that prove that he's God? Why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ prove that he is God? Well, the Gospel of John actually tells us the answer. Consider the context of John 2. If you remember the story, Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover. He had driven out the money changers. And then we read, starting in verse 18, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And you remember what the Jews said. They said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. You see, the Jews, they wanted to know what evidence. What evidence did Jesus have that he had the authority to go into the temple and start driving out those money changers? 
And his answer was the sign that he would give them is that three days after his death, he would rise up from the grave. The resurrection of Christ, it validated his claims. Everything that he said is true, that he is God. But it's not just the resurrection that points to his deity. Go back to Romans 1 and look again at verse 2, that the gospel... The gospel of Christ, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I love that because the prophets testify of the coming of Christ. These prophecies written down hundreds of years before the ministry of Jesus. They point to the undeniable proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Take a look at verse 3 in Romans. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Now, the truth that Jesus was born according to the flesh means that his existence, his life, it cannot be denied. Many historians from that day, many ancient writers, if you go back and look at the writings of that day, they indeed testify that Jesus was an actual historical person that walked this planet. He walked this earth. The evidence is there. And of the seed of David, Paul writes in Romans. Again, the Old Testament predicted this. Of the seed of David, predicted in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23. Prophecies written down hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand that the Messiah would be of the seed of David. Jesus is both fully God, fully man. The perfect redeemer of men. Saul, I think, was headed in this direction in Acts 9, when he taught in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. In the 1700s in England, there were two young smart men, young intellectuals by the names of Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. Now, both of these men were lawyers, and they were not dumb. They were pretty smart, and they both said that they rejected the claims of Christ. Well, one day in their conversation, it was concluded that the Christian faith, from the outside looking in, the Christian faith stood on two pillars, if you will, two foundations, the resurrection of Jesus and the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And they came to the conclusion that should these two stories be proved wrong, the rest of the Christian faith would fall with them. So Gilbert West, he agreed to write a book disproving the resurrection of Jesus. And Littleton agreed to write a book disproving that Paul was converted by a direct encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. No problem, they thought. Easy peasy. Not a problem at all. But when they got together to share their progress, they had to confess that the evidence was actually starting to win them over to the other side. And when it was all over, there were two books written. Gilbert West went on to write The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, arguing that the resurrection is indeed a fact of history. And Littleton wrote The Conversion of St. Paul. And listen to his words, his own words. The conversion and apostleship of Paul alone, duly considered, is of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity and to be a divine revelation. 
You see, Paul himself saw that he could no longer deny the claims of Christ. Look again to our text in Acts 9 with me. The people were amazed because they knew who he was. They knew he was the one. Notice the wording. He was the one that destroyed those who call on the name of Jesus. That's pretty strong language. Destroy. They knew he had come to Damascus for this purpose. But look at the work of Christ. Look at what Christ had done in his life. And then in verse 22, Saul increased in strength. And he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now watch the wording here. The wording here is actually pretty powerful. The word that Luke uses for proving in the text, it means to join. It means to Put together, giving us this picture of Saul putting together Old Testament text, Old Testament passage after passage, demonstrating how Christ actually fulfilled each one of them. Paul was an incredible student of the Old Testament, and once he was converted, he was able to use that knowledge just like rapid fire to show that any man that would dare listen that Jesus is the Christ. So Saul had come to Damascus to persecute the church. And what did he do? He left preaching Jesus Christ. The people were taken aback at this transformation in Saul. But here's where Galatians chapter 1 comes in. Paul argued that he did not receive in Galatians 1 his authority as an apostle from the apostles in Jerusalem. He received his authority directly from Christ. Galatians 1 Verse 15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Notice, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. By his own testimony, Paul states that he went to Arabia. Now you can see the region of Arabia on the map. This is desert land. This was time to be with the Lord, to grow in his faith and his understanding of Christ. So fitting this back into Acts chapter 9, the question then comes is just exactly where do these three years fit into the text? Now Paul stated in Galatians that he went to Arabia. Then he went back to Damascus. And as you look to chapter 9 of Acts, in my understanding of this text, it seems that verse 22 is very closely connected with verse 20. That verse 22 took place immediately after the conversion of Saul. But notice with me how Luke starts verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Yeah, I'd say many days. Roughly three years many days is what I think happened. Between verses 22 and 23, Paul had now come back to Damascus. So Paul continued to preach Christ. Paul continued to grow in his own understanding of the doctrines of Christ. And as he did, his witness for Christ, it only got stronger and it intensified. And many in Damascus, oh, they had enough of Saul. They sought to kill him. But watch what happens starting now in verse 24. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. 
Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Now, Paul, again, later on, would write about this. He wrote about the humiliation that he had in his own escape from Damascus. In 2 Corinthians 11, he said this. In Damascus, the governor under Eretus, the king, was guarding. Okay, now you got a king actually guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. You see, Luke said in Acts that the Jews plotted to kill Saul. They watched the gates day and night. And here's what happened. The territory of Arabia that Saul spent time in was the kingdom of the Nabataeans. And it was a thriving kingdom in that day. And it's believed that some of these Nabataeans, they lived in Damascus. And that's where the problem came in. During this time, the king was King Eretus IV. King Eretus had sent his governor after Saul. And they were guarding the city. They were wanting to arrest Saul. What did Saul do? He preached Christ to them. And now he was a wanted man. So we have this image in Acts of the Jews watching the gates, wanting to kill him, looking for an opportunity to kill him. A garrison of troops from Arabia had arrived seeking to arrest him. And the Lord had told Ananias in verse 16, Saul would suffer for the name of Christ. And boy, it didn't take long. The city of Damascus was surrounded by a wall. The only way out was through the gates. But apparently, one of the believers had access to a house on the city wall. This is the wall that still stands, you can see there today. They took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And so now Paul leaves Damascus through the wall. And he's the one hunted for his faith. But his problems... His problems were not done. Verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid. Do you think? I would be too. They were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in. And going out. Saul was obviously still feared. He was missing. Remember what we just said. He went missing for three years. Where'd he go? They didn't know. They might have wondered where he'd been. Because if Saul was just pretending. And if his faith was not real. And if he was just using this as a ruse to look for Christians and arrest them and lock them up. Well then this was a seriously big problem. But it wasn't a trick of course. And Barnabas steps onto the scene as the mediator, bringing Saul to the apostles. Now, Paul wrote in Galatians that he went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. He stayed with Peter for 15 days. And notice the persecution returns here in verse 29. Notice our last three verses. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out. To Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. You know, Paul had a unique way of cutting right to the heart of the matter, didn't he? 
and bringing upon himself the wrath of men. Perhaps this is because he was bold in his witness. Perhaps this is the reason we don't suffer more. This time, Saul disputed with the Greek-speaking Jews. This may have been the same synagogue that Stephen witnessed for Christ in. The Hellenist Jews, if you remember back, they were able to have Stephen killed. And now who did they want? They wanted Saul. And Luke says what happened. They tried, but what happened? Paul answers himself in Acts 22. Read it with me. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And I saw him, who's him? Christ. Saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said... Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. The Lord warned Paul in a vision that the Jews would not accept the witness of Christ through the apostle Paul. And once the Christians had found out his life was in danger back in chapter 9, they brought him down to the port city of Caesarea, and then they sent him home off by boat up to Cilicia, up to his home city of Tarsus. And there, Paul continued to grow in his faith. Paul continued to witness for Jesus Christ. And we know he traveled into Syria, and we know he traveled into Cilicia, no doubt preaching Christ all along the way. And we actually don't see Paul for a while until the end of chapter 11 when Barnabas brought him back from Tarsus to Antioch. A number of years go by again, six or seven years between the time that Paul went back to Tarsus and the time frame of chapter 11 when he heads to Antioch. These are often referred to as the silent years in the life of the Apostle Paul. Not because Paul was silent, but rather the Word of God for the most part is silent on the work that Paul was actually doing during this time. In verse 31, it sums up this entire section of Acts. Luke does a masterful job in the Scriptures of summing up the Word of God. He sums it up as the conversion of Saul brings about the end of this time of persecution of the church. Churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. They were edified. And no longer was Saul breathing down their necks. And the persecution was over. Until, until what? Until it starts again in Acts chapter 12 when Herod began to persecute the Christians. The other factor to keep in mind at this time was that the Roman emperor Tiberius had died. Sometimes that can be a good thing. But the new guy, the new emperor, he wanted to build a statue of himself in the temple at Jerusalem at about this time. And with that going on, the Jews actually had other problems, which gave the Christians a little bit of a break because the Jews were now worried about the new emperor. For the time being, for a few years, the Lord had brought about an end to the persecution of his church. The Christians walked in fear of the Lord, in comfort of the Holy Spirit, and their numbers, it says, continued to grow. Because why? When the Spirit of God has his way, listen on this, when the Spirit of God has his way in the hearts and lives of believers, the unsaved people are going to be reached, and some of them are going to be one for Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I know you guys know the name. He was born in 1834. 
His father, we've talked about him before, his father was a minister of the gospel. So Charles was influenced by the word of God from a very, very early age. Even as a young boy, he'd been passionate towards reading. He read, how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody? Yeah. Well, he read that book when he was only six years old. Without any formal education, without any formal college, he became a pastor at the age of 17. And eventually he was called to pastor at New Park Street Chapel in London. They wanted him to come for six months as a trial period. But Spurgeon said, no, I only want to come for three months. Not because he was arrogant, but because he was humble. And he said this, the congregation might not want me. And I do not want to be a hindrance. When Spurgeon arrived at the New Park Street Church in 1854, the congregation had 232 members. By the end of his pastor, 38 years later, that number had increased to over 5,000. He was just 20 years old when he accepted the call to pastor at New Park Street. One man told his father at the time, quote, Your son will never last in London six months because he has no education. And his father, his father replied, You are terribly mistaken. He has had the best education that he possibly could have. Because God, God has been his teacher. He remained the pastor for 38 years until his death. It's estimated that he preached to over 10 million people during his lifetime. That's a lot of people back in that day. He could read six books a week, but here's the impressive part of that. Not just that he could read six books a week, but he could remember what he read years later. By the time 1865 rolled around, his printed sermons sold 25,000 copies a week, translated into more than 20 languages. He often worked 18 hours a day studying, laboring in the Word of God, and he spoke out so strongly against slavery that American publishers of sermons began deleting his comments on the subject. Many Christians today like to envy the success that Spurgeon had. Not understanding that the success of ministry is only a fraction of the story. Charles Spurgeon was not a man of leisure. He didn't know a man of life and ease, a life free of pain, a life free of suffering. He had his ups and he had his downs. In October of 1856, he preached for the first time in the music hall that they had. Because the building that they met in could not hold all the people gathered around. The building capacity was at 10,000 people. The crowd far exceeded this number with the people pressing in and someone shouted the words, fire. Great panic spread. Seven people were killed. Many more were injured. It was a day that haunted him for years in ministry. He was just 22 years old at the time. Spurgeon also knew the pain when families struggle. His Wife, he married Susan Thomas in 1856. And in 1856, at the age of 33, she became an invalid. She couldn't even take care of herself. She seldom ever had the opportunity to hear her husband preach for the next 27 years until his death. Spurgeon also suffered from physical pain. He suffered from gout, rheumatism, and Bright's disease, which is an inflammation of the kidneys. 
His first attack of gout came in 1869 at the age of 35. It became progressively worse so that roughly, listen to this, one third of the time of the last 22 years of ministry, it was actually spent out of the pulpit because of his sickness. In a letter to a friend, he wrote, I thought a cobra had bit me and filled my veins with poison, but it was worse. It was gout. For over half of his ministry, Spurgeon dealt with pain that continued to increase in his joints that cut him down from the pulpit time and time again. This disease finally did take his life at age 57. Spurgeon also had to endure ridicule, a lifetime of ridicule, a lifetime of slander. The newspapers of the day called him rude and they called him vulgar. They said that when he preached common sense, listen to this insult, when he preached common sense was outraged and decency was disgusted. His wife kept a scrapbook of the criticisms he faced. Some of it was easy to brush off, but let me tell you, sometimes it's not. In 1857, Spurgeon wrote this. Heed these words, friends. Down on my knees have I often fallen with the hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me. In agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. See, pastors from London were piling on to his troubles, writing that Spurgeon was absolutely destitute of intellectual benevolence. I had to think of that one for a second. That was a little hard for my brain. He was accused of only seeing things in black and white, of being egotistical because he believed the word of God. And he suffered from times of deep depression. But listen to the lessons that he pulled from this. He went on to write, Our afflictions are the health regimen of an infinitely wise physician. I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to us is health with the exception of sickness. If some men that I know could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. And then listen to this. The good that I have received from my sorrows, my pains, and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Powerful words. Powerful words from a well-known servant of Almighty God. Now, I often stand back and wonder, looking at the great men of faith and all that they accomplished for Jesus Christ. Men like Paul, men like Spurgeon. But don't separate for a minute the great accomplishments from the real lives that these servants lived. From the times of trouble, from the times of suffering and pain. Yes, God used them, because it is then that in their weakness, the glory and power of God can be greatly seen. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote, speaking of his own infirmities, he said this, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The key, isn't it? Right there. That we live our lives dependent upon Christ and His power, 
even in the struggles of life, even in the trials, turning to Christ, placing our trust in him, knowing with full confidence that his grace is sufficient for us. Because why? His grace never ends. The rapture, Israel, the tribulation, the kingdom of God, the millennium, the judgment seat of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. These are just some of the topics that we cover in our book, What Lies Ahead. We wanted to write a book that was easy to understand, that would give a good, solid overview of the end times. You can find it on our website, returntotheword.com. That book again is What Lies Ahead. And if you've read it, leave us a review on Amazon. It helps us. It helps us to tell others about this study of God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.